We're going to begin in verse 23 of chapter 1 and continue on through chapter 2, verse 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23 and following, hear the word of the Lord. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Would you pray with me? Lord, we pray that you would give us help today by your Holy Spirit, illumine the text, give us understanding, and we ask that you would plant your word deep in our hearts and bring about life change. Lord, we pray for those who do not have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, that through the word today that you would bring them forth unto eternal life that you would grant eyes to see and ears to hear and faith to believe in the crucified and resurrected and ascended and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. And for your people, Lord, who are called by your name, who have trusted in the finished work of Jesus, I pray that you would use your word to build us up in the faith to encourage, to strengthen, to comfort, and to care for through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The sermon title is The Restoration of a Disciplined Church Member. You may be visiting here and you're like, church discipline. Wow, this is an exciting subject. And probably if we did topical preaching rather than verse by verse through the whole of the Bible, 
we might skip this because quite frankly, church discipline is an uncomfortable topic. It's not very popular. It's been avoided for many, many years. We've had to practice church discipline about four times in the time that I've been here, and the first time was terrifying for the congregation. It was scary. Is it going to cause division? Is it Is everybody going to leave? Is everybody going to get mad? What is the world going to say? Discipline is not popular. In Mark Dever's book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, one of the chapters is on biblical church discipline, and that's one of the nine marks of a healthy church. In fact, even the reformers talked about where there is the right preaching of the word, where the, the sacraments are performed rightly, and where there's right church discipline, there you have a church. In the 1950s, one of the Greek scholars, H.E. Dana, said this. He said, the abuse of discipline is reprehensible and destructive but not more than the abandonment of discipline. Two generations ago, the churches were applying discipline in a a vindictive and arbitrary fashion that justly brought it into disrepute. Today, the pendulum has swung to the other extreme. Discipline is almost wholly neglected. It is time for a new generation of pastors to restore this important function of the church to its rightful significance and place in church life. But the reality is it's hard. Church discipline is hard. There are so many nuances and the Situations are all different, and it requires faith and wisdom and a congregation who is surrendered to the Word of God and obeying the Word of God. But it's still hard. We cannot do it in our own strength. It, It takes the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jonathan Lehman, in his book, The Church and the Surprising Offense of God's Love, Reintroducing the Doctrines of Church Membership and Discipline, says this. He agrees that it's difficult. He says, corrective church discipline is a small act of judgment on earth that dimly points to God's final judgment in heaven. It's performed with the hope that it will help bring a sinner to repentance before that final judgment comes. When we get down to it, therefore, I think church discipline is hard to do because we treat God's final judgment so lightly. We go for days, even months, never thinking of it. We even secretly wonder if 
it will be so bad after all. The evil one has never stopped whispering in our ear, you will not surely die. What's more, we love ourselves too much and the dissonance between God's God-centered conception of love and our own man-centered conception screeches loudest in the face of church discipline. God won't really judge those outside the gospel, will he? So we're talking about church discipline. We know that the goal is restoration, amen? The goal is not just to punish and shame and cast out if a church member is unrepentant and will not obey the Lord Jesus and His Word. The goal is to bring them back into self-discipline under the authority of Christ and under the authority of His Word so that they will flourish, so that they'll experience the abundant life that He came. So the goal is restoration, a faithful walk with Jesus rather than a rebellious walk. I want us to see three things this morning in our text, and I really hope that that we'll find encouragement, that we'll be better equipped, and that we will be exhorted to obey the Scriptures and follow the ways of God. His ways are always right. His ways are always best. The first thing I want us to see is found in verses 23 through chapter 2, verse 4 in this section where Paul is, last week we looked at him defending his integrity of his change in his travel plans. So he changed his mind and he was defending his own integrity that was being spoken against. But in this section, we see him giving the reason for the change of plans. He gives a reason and it should be very encouraging. And so this is what I want us to see. Number one, the love of Christ abounds in the most painful and heart-wrenching situations in the life of the church. The love of Christ abounds in the most painful and heart-wrenching situations in the life of the church. When there's time and the need of church discipline, we will find the love of Christ overflowing and abounding. And it's very important that His love overflows through us out of us, being consistent with the love of Christ. The second thing I want us to see is in verses five to eight, and it's this, restoration after church discipline involves not only the sinner's repentance, but also the church's forgiveness and reaffirmation of love. And this is where many times the church falls short of reaffirming love and granting forgiveness. And we've said every single time 
that if the person who is being disciplined, if they repent, then the church will gather together in the same way that they gathered to discipline, to forgive and to restore and to reaffirm love. And we've said, we will have a big party, amen? Restoration after church discipline involves not only the, center, the sinner's repentance, but also the church's forgiveness and reaffirmation of love. In that section, I hope that we will find deep equipping for us uh, in the future. God forbid that we would have to deal with anything like that. And number three, and finally, I want us to see that the refusal to forgive, love, and restore a repentant sinner plays right into the devil's schemes to wreak havoc in the church. And we see that in verses 9 to 11. Paul wants to guard us and guard the Corinthian church so that the devil doesn't have his way in the life of the church and with the Corinthians in their relationship with Paul and the repentant sinner. So let's look first of all, number one, in chapter one, verse 23 through chapter two, verse four, the love of Christ abounds in the most painful and heart-wrenching situations in the life of the church. Look at verse 23. But I call God to witness against me. Now, this is serious. This is like a courtroom. God, Paul is calling God to stand and give testimony against Paul if he's in the wrong. <clears throat> but I call God to witness against me. <clears throat> it was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. It was to spare you. Not that we, excuse me, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. And I wanna stop there. Paul is refraining from another painful visit. And what that means is, There was a painful visit, and he's refraining from coming again and experiencing another painful visit. And what we see in the text is that there was a painful visit that was followed by a tear-soaked and painfully severe letter that Paul wrote. He was rebuking not only the leader of the opposition who had publicly attacked Paul with words, but he was also rebuking the congregation that had tolerated it. So it seemed that there was one person who had been swayed by the false teachers who was the ringleader in the congregation. He had been stirred up and he was the ringleader in opposition against Paul. And when Paul had come to visit Corinth, he publicly opposed Paul, verbally attacked him, and the congregation did nothing. 
and it was incredibly painful. In fact, Paul left humiliated. So he was avoiding another painful visit. In verse 2 it says, for if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer, suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all, for I wrote to you. So this, instead of making another painful visit, he wrote to them, and this letter was a severe letter. It was tear-saturated, tear-soaked. It was bold and blunt and had a tone of harshness But he tells why he wrote it. And he says this, for I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. See, Paul's heart for the people is that of love. It's the love of Jesus. He says later in 2 Corinthians that the love of Christ controls us. We love you and everything that we're doing is for your good. And we've said before that a good definition of love is doing what's best for another person in light of eternity. And so in light of eternity, Paul is writing a very severe letter so that they will repent. They were wrong. Not only was the leader, the ringleader in the wrong, but the church was in the wrong also for tolerating that. I think we see that so many times in the church today. Somebody is stirred up in the congregation and they begin stirring others up and we kind of excuse it like, well, everybody has a right to their opinion. Oh, they're just that way, rather than the church saying, no, we will not tolerate division. We will not allow the enemy to get an upper hand in our congregation. We rebuke you in the name of the Lord. You cannot act that way. And yet the church at Corinth didn't do that. They let this person just abuse Paul in their midst. And so he's writing them out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. He's he's weeping as he writes this letter. He's just torn up over the Corinthians and the mess that they're in, calling them to repentance, knowing that if they don't repent, then the next time he's coming with judgment, and it's the judgment of God. He was overflowing with the abounding love of Christ. He writes in 1 Corinthians, a chapter that we know well, that's in between this teaching on the spiritual gifts. It's called the love chapter. You're real familiar with it. But Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, love is patient and kind. 
Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. I mean, Paul is torn up as he writes this letter. He wants them to walk in the way of Christ. He wants them to experience the abundance of Christ. He's not being spiteful. He's not being vindictive. He's he's not angry and rude. He's just broken over the Corinthians' rebellion, and he's calling them to repentance. And that is the love of Christ just overflowing and abounding in his life towards the church at Corinth. And that's what we need when there's a need for church discipline is for the leaders in the church and everyone in the congregation to be filled with the Holy Spirit and overflowing with the love of Christ. And we will experience that abounding love of Christ. And interestingly, in the four cases that I mentioned of church discipline, when the church voted to remove someone, it was unanimous and it was with tears. There was not a dry eye in the congregation because there was a unity in spirit, a unity in heart that was in love doing what was best for the other person in light of eternity. That they would experience a a taste of judgment now so that they would avoid an eternal judgment later. Remember, it's about restoration. Secondly, restoration after church discipline involves not only the sinner's repentance, but also the church's forgiveness and reaffirmation of love. So many times we're so focused on calling the sinner to repentance that we forget how important it is to reaffirm and restore. Look at verse 5, the sin against the community that Paul talks about. Paul says this in verse 5. He says, now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure not to put it too severely to all of you. Now the sinner did cause pain to Paul. It was intense pain. It was a painful visit. It was in front of everybody. It was a direct attack. And yet Paul says, he's shifting the focus off of himself. And he says, if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me. This isn't about me. But in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. In other words, he's saying that person's sin was a community issue. He sinned against the church. It was a sin against the community. And the community was at fault because they did, they tolerated it. It's very similar to what had happened in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, another case of church discipline that Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says this in chapter 5 verse 1, it is actually reported that there is a sexual, that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, 
and you are arrogant, ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. In other words, the congregation was tolerating this fellow church member's sin. And they were tolerating this person's verbal abuse when he had attacked Paul. So the sin against the community became a community sin, a stumbling block to the community as well. But Paul takes the focus off himself and says, the reality is this person shamed or defamed the name of Christ. He defamed the name of the church and he sinned against the congregation. But notice the punishment by the majority. Verse six, he says, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. Wait a minute. They had tolerated this sin in the congregation, but Paul's tearful and painful letter who when he was calling them to repentance, it had worked. In fact, they disciplined this person. And it says, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. The majority of the Corinthians had punished, had disciplined this brother, this member in the congregation. They had put him out of the congregation. So they had obeyed Paul's letter, his tearful letter. Now, how do we know this? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 to 13. This is the genuine repentance that is recognized a little bit later by Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 to 13. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. So in other words, they received this letter, this painful letter, and they heard and they listened and they were grieved into repenting. Look at verse nine, as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces repentance, produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, the ringleader, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, speaking of himself, Paul, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. So the letter worked. The Holy Spirit had worked and had brought about repentance. They were grieved into repenting. The congregation disciplined the member. The discipline worked. And the member was grieved into repenting as well. 
But Paul says, now you've got to do something else. Back to chapter 2, verse 6, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So church discipline worked, the believer repented, and now the church has a responsibility for corporate forgiveness, to pronounce forgiveness, to grant forgiveness. Now, forgiveness is at the heart of the gospel. We see several scriptures, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. So, to refuse to forgive would be antithetical to the gospel. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 15, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. So for us to receive the forgiveness of God and then refuse to grant forgiveness to a repentant brother, we would be acting in a way that is inconsistent with the gospel. Dave Harvey says this in a book we know, When Sinners Say I Do. He says, extending true forgiveness is clear and persuasive evidence that we have been forgiven by God. The bottom line is that forgiven sinners forgive sin. Amen? Paul Tripp writes this about forgiveness. He says, forgiveness is the only way to live in an intimate, long-term relationship with another sinner. Forgiveness is the only way to negotiate through the weakness and failure that will daily mark your relationships. It is the only way to deal with hurt and disappointment. Forgiveness is the only way to have hope and confidence restored. It is the only way to protect your love and reinforce the unity that you've built. Forgiveness is the only way not to be kidnapped by the past. It's the only way to give your relationships the blessing of fresh starts and new beginnings. Paul says you must forgive. As a congregation, you must forgive. There was punishment by the majority, but in the same way, the majority's got to gather back together and grant forgiveness. But not only forgiveness. Notice what he says in verse 8. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Paul is exhorting them, forgive and reaffirm your love, express your love, restore the person to the rightful place in the congregation. If you don't do that, if you don't forgive and restore your love, the danger would be that he would be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow, overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So restoration after church discipline involves not only the sinner's repentance, 
but also the church's forgiveness and reaffirmation of love. We cannot fall short of granting forgiveness and reaffirming our love. So he gives two different reasons to forgive and encourage and reaffirm love. The first one was that that the repentant sinner would not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. And the second one is that Satan would not have his way with the church and their relationship with Paul. And so that leads us to the final point, which is this, the refusal to forgive, love, and restore a repentant sinner plays right into the devil's schemes to wreak havoc in the church. Paul's saying, if you want to mess up the church even more, you want to let Satan have his way in the church, then you'll refuse to forgive and reaffirm your love because Satan will play right into that. Look at verses 9 through 11. Paul says, for this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Paul has forgiven this person that attacked him. Paul has forgiven the congregation. Now he's calling the congregation to forgive this repentant sinner. He's already forgiven. And he gives a reason so that we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus says, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. Satan wants to destroy the church. He wants to destroy the unity of the church. He wants to destroy the fellowship, the love expressed. Why? Because they will know that we're Christians by the way that we love one another. It defames Christ in the world. It tells a lie about the gospel. When there's unforgiveness, it's antithetical to the gospel. And Satan wants to work through disunity in the church and unforgiveness in the church to destroy the church. And Paul's saying you will play right into the devil's schemes to destroy the church if you refuse to forgive and love and restore. Mark Dever says in that nine Marks book about church discipline, he gives five reasons for biblical church discipline. And he, here's number one, he says, for the good of the person disciplined, Number two is for the good of the other Christians as they see the danger of sin. Number three, for the health of the church as a whole. Number four, for the corporate witness of the church. And number five, for the glory of God as we reflect His holiness and the refusal to discipline and the refusal to restore a repentant sinner defames the gospel, it defames the name of Christ, it defames the corporate witness of the church, it causes a mess. So we not, we not only need to discipline sin, we need to restore and express love and a welcoming, welcome one another when there is repentance. Back in the 1950s and before, 
The scholar was right that discipline had been abused. And he said this, the abuse of discipline is reprehensible and destructive, but not more than the abandonment of discipline. And I would add into this that to refuse to restore a repentant sinner, to refuse to express love and reaffirmation of that love would fall into the category of the abuse of discipline. It's hard. We've got to trust the Lord with his purposes, his ways, but ultimately it's for our good and it's for the good of his testimony in the world right here in Savannah and to the ends of the earth. Church, will you commit to obedience, to following the Lord Jesus according to his word in all cases of church discipline, not just casting somebody out, but also welcoming them back upon repentance. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the calling that you have called us to, a holy calling. You've called us to live lives that reflect your holy character. And sometimes we find that it's hard to do that. And we substitute our own judgment in place of yours. And Lord, I pray that we would repent of that and that we would turn and walk in your ways, that we would trust you with your word and that you would bring about your holy purposes, not only in our congregation, but every congregation in our city and all of those who name the name of Jesus. Lord, we pray that we would see a restoration of church discipline in our generation that would reflect your holy character and your abounding love. Lord, help us to always do what's best for another in light of eternity, that we would not be vindictive, that we would not be abusive in any way. Lord, that we would be caring and merciful towards those who are caught in patterns of sin, that they might taste a little bit of judgment now in order to avoid eternal judgment later. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.